0: Hello humans. Do you remember last week when I was all jazzy in my intro about how I thought the full moon was going to be so awesome because it was in my sign and la 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 la? Well, I spoke too soon. (laughs) I had the worst week ever, not ever, but in a really long time. And then I started asking people about the full moon and people started to share with me their horrible weeks as well. So I guess this super moon and Capricorn on the 13th was a bit of a doozy. So if it was a doozy for you, I'm so sorry. And I hope you're feeling better. I am finally feeling better. Honestly, it was like I was body snatched from somewhere around like the day before, the full moon until like, I don't know, that Friday or Saturday. It was so weird. I thought that Tuesday was just kind of like a fluke. Like it was one of those, oh, well, I'm just having kind of a tired day, but it just kept on going. It was the gift that kept on giving. All right. I am really excited about my guest this week, Bridget Murphy. When I had this conversation with her, which was a few weeks ago, it was just what I needed at the time. And when I was editing this episode for y'all to listen to this week, it was just what I needed to hear again. There are a lot of cool things about Bridget, but one thing I really love about this conversation and her path is she started as a witch and learned the foundation of her healing arts that she practices now working at a witch shop for over 10 years. Now she is a shamanic practitioner, and that's a really unique path, and it allows us to talk about that relationship between the will of witchcraft and the surrender of shamanic practices. So we're going to talk a lot about the comparison of these two paths. And I want to say before we get into it because there's a couple times during the interview where you might think that I'm disowning witchcraft or I'm, you know, saying that shamanic practices are superior to witchcraft. And I don't think that at all. I want to make it clear here. I think they're both wonderful paths. My best magic, my best spells come from the balance between surrender willpower, surrender, taking action. It's sort of the seesaw that goes back and forth. Okay. One more note before we move forward with this interview, we do talk about NDEs and I realize maybe not everybody knows what that stands for. So that is a near-death experience. And we're going to go further down the rabbit hole on that topic soon. We're putting a pin in it. Oh my God, the research that is happening on NDUs right now, it's literally going to blow your mind. You're just going to be like dead on the floor, dead. All right. Bridget Murphy is a transformational healer and founder of Path to Power Programs, where she empowers people to heal from within. She's a certified shamanic practitioner with the Church of Earth Healing and an ordained interfaith minister. Bridget empowers people through the practice of spiritual growth. Her transformative teachings, training, and private mentoring have helped hundreds of people transform their lives. With 25 years of experience in guiding others, Her personal journey through physical illness and emotional trauma drives her passion to help others heal and live their sole purpose. Bridget has been a highlighted teacher at the Spirit Fire Festival and Lilydale Assembly in New York. I want to go there so bad I haven't been yet and the celebration of Reiki Inc. conference in Boston. All right, let's get into the woo with Bridget Murphy. I usually like to start with, how did you get into the woo? You know, what happened when you were a kid? Did you have any like out-of-body experiences or anything like that when you were young where you were like, I'm a little closer to spirit than maybe like the average person? Yes. Yes.
1: Well, when I was probably in, I mean, 18 months old, I was moving myself into altered states through like body movement. I didn't consciously know that I was doing it. I just, you know, looking back, when you look back at your life, you can see, you know, the patterns and the things that you did. So I was doing that at that young of an age. My first out-of-body experience, my memories of being doing out-of-body work were like seven or eight. And then at about 12, which is common, it's common for young people who go through puberty to attract different sort of spiritual experiences. Yeah. I was experiencing what people would call ghost activity. And so I would see things and hear things and some weird, like sort of psychic or energetic phenomenon would happen with lights turning on and off and just air quotes, strange things happening. So that's the youngest experiences that I had. And then as I was a teenager and, you know, moved forward from there, I had more experiences.
0: Did you feel like those experiences accelerated your growth on this path or did they scare you or, you know, what was your relationship with them? Because I know when you're little, especially a lot of times people are super freaked out by that kind of stuff.
1: I found it very intriguing. I mean, from when I can consciously remember, drawn to the mystical. I was nine years old when and I'm dating myself. The movie Poltergeist came out. Ooh. and I loved it. I don't know why my mom let me watch it. I loved Poltergeist.
0: <laughs> that is pretty early for that one. <laughs> and there was
1: something that felt very familiar to me about the content of what was going on, about that little girl getting lost on the other side, you know, all the things that were happening there. So I resonated with that. And then when I was, again, my mom let me at 11, let me have a Ouija board Ooh. and my friends and I played with the Ouija board. I felt it was age appropriate, me, but sometimes the things that I think are normal, (laughs) not everyone else is doing them. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah.
0: Was your mom a witch or what was her jam? Because that's pretty unusual to encourage Ouija boards. I feel like, especially they're still pretty taboo. I mean, like people are really fucking weird about them.
1: (laughs) They are. They are. They really are. My mom, no, my mom wasn't a witch. My mom definitely, my mom is Italian. And there are a lot of superstitions and sort of psychic beliefs that come along from her lineage. There were psychics in her side of the family. She wasn't any particular flavor of anything metaphysical. She did practice yoga. She did calm me down when I was hyper by leading me with meditations. And I think she gave me my first crystal. At maybe 12 or 13 years old.
0: So she was sort of dipping her toes in the woo. And I mean, even with the yoga, I mean, she definitely had like a yes. body, mind awareness. which Yes. Is- and
1: I also think she knew that that type of stuff was for me because I don't think she gave my sister crystals.
0: Really? Interesting. So what's your sister like?
1: My sister is quiet. She is very, has a a lot of depth to her and follows her own spiritual path, unlike mine. She will often connect with me if she would like sort of a different spiritual point of view of what's happening for her. She walks a different path than I do.
0: Curious that like your mom picked up on that so early and she actually encouraged you to grow on that path because what I hear so often is that people are like, freaked out that their kids are interested in things that are considered quote unquote edgy or darker or pushing the status quo in a way. So it's it's cool that you had a mom like that, that was encouraging of that. Do you think you would have found it anyway without her or she wasn't like an essential component to your growth on this
1: path? I think I would have found it without her.
0: It was there already. You were just like dying for it. So yeah. when you say like ghost activity, though, I'm curious about that. What was that like for you? And you said in the pre-call that you were a witch for a little while, you you owned a witch shop and now you're a shamanic practitioner, so you've been through like these different phases of the woo, so to speak. I'm just curious what you thought of ghosts then and what you think of ghosts now.
1: Well, as a teenager, I was definitely all about finding vortexes and spots where, you know, ghosts were known to inhabit to be And I had friends who were interested in the same thing. And so we would pay attention and go to different places that were known to be touched or haunted. And sometimes we'd spook ourselves out. It was very exciting. So I was curious as a teenager. As I have gotten older, I'm less curious and I'm more accepting of the different energies that exist in a variety of realms. To me, the spirits of the dead... Connecting with us and being present, it's very normal. Connecting with the ancestors and different non-physical form beings has become just something I'm very comfortable with.
0: And so you kind of have transitioned to putting them all kind of in one pot, like a variety pot of other entities.
1: It's all energy and they're all part of the larger experience. They exist in different, I guess, dimensions. And to me, it's all absolutely normal.
0: Last night, I couldn't sleep. And I was reading this John Keel interview. Do you know who who he is? I don't. He wrote The Mothman Prophecies. Do you remember that story? I do, yeah. Yeah, really great story. And he was also a ufologist and everything. And this particular interview, he talks about how when he first started looking for aliens... He thought that they were like these physical things that you found and that there were lots of different categories of entities. And then as he did more and more and more investigations, he came to this realization that it's so much more mysterious than you can even fathom. And there's always a psychic component to it. He's like, the further down the rabbit hole you go, the more they all just kind of become this one blob. And you know that there's other dimensions and they're just there. So just, you don't have to like figure out the origins because like, it's not going to happen probably.
1: I mean, I feel like that is pretty accurate. I'm no longer curious about where and why. I am more into tuning into what is happening and learning from it and seeking out the guidance of the beings that resonate with me oh that's
0: really well said i'm stupidly curious and sometimes curiosity kills the fen it really does cause a problem because if you get stuck on like where and why my thing is like why why is this happening you know and it's like who fucking cares just let it happen And I think it's so cool that you've transitioned, it sounds really beautifully, into, I don't worry about why. I worry about like, what is coming up right now? And if something is coming up, what can I learn from that? Is that why you moved from practicing witchcraft primarily to being a shamanic practitioner?
1: I'll respond in saying that my sort of stance now is... Instead of why is this happening? What do I need to know? What do I need to do about what's happening? Mm -hmm. How do I need to interact with the information that I'm receiving? That could be considered connected to my growth in that when I was first experiencing spirituality, I was led through the witchcraft and Wicca gates and I resonated really strongly with the practices. And as I grew, I realized I was less... Religious and more spiritual. And I was more resonant with animism, which is understanding that there's an essence in all things, which led me to shamanism, where in shamanism we communicate with that essence. So it was less about the deities and the God and the God force and more about the essence of the energies and the spirits in nature and in the ancestral realms. And it was a natural unfolding in my journey.
0: I identify as an eclectic witch primarily because I don't love religion or being boxed into any specific category so eclectic it's a term that allows you to get away with using lots of different practices from different traditions and you get to do that more so in witchcraft than other paths I'll say but you're right I'm kind of odd in the land of witchcraft because I'm a pantheist so I agree that everything is god essentially you know that like there is an essence of the thing of the OG source in everything and it just doesn't really work for me all the time to be working with the like different pantheons and stuff i feel like you should be able to do both right and and there's probably a lot of similarities between witchcraft
1: and shamanism do you find that i think depending on how it's practiced and who's practicing it there are and then there are differences depending on what type of witchcraft you're practicing There are a lot more rules than in shamanic practice.
0: Mm. Sometimes I'm like, oh my God, this freaking spell has too many steps. (laughs) You have to follow them to a T and, you know, like Aleister Crowley's work, right? His spells, some of them would take you years to work. They're so complicated.
1: I tend to move more intuitively than I do to some prescribed ritual format. I really feel like when we're able to allow energy to move through us and move intuitively, more comes through. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So tell me about the witch shop. So what happened? You had these experiences when you were really young. You had even more when you became a teenager. So you're toying with Ouija boards and everything. It sounds like it tracks to get into witchcraft, right? So when did that happen? And tell me a little bit about that time period.
1: Yes, I was 16 when I first found the local witch shop. I loved it. I loved going there. I loved learning. I bought all the books. By 19, I was working there. And then by 23, I was managing the store. I didn't own the store. I was, well, I loved it like it was my own. I became friends with the people who owned it. And then I became the manager. And so that's how it happened. It all really presented itself very naturally. I didn't have to try hard. I just found myself being compelled and naturally guided in that direction. And I I followed it.
0: I don't know if I've ever been to a witch shop that didn't feel like a safe space for queer people. Do you agree with that?
1: Well, I haven't been to all the witch shops.
0: <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> but I
1: do, it, is, it is my experience that the very nature of being so out of the box as witches are just sort of allows or lays way for the out of the boxness of being queer. Yeah, absolutely. You're out of the mainstream. And I feel like out of the mainstream groups, they kind of often identify with one another, even if they're not in the same marginalized group. Yeah.
0: So you're at the witch shop at 23. You're now managing it. Mm-hmm. What happens? What compelled you to leave to move to working as a shamanic practitioner?
1: I worked at that witch shop until I was 33. And during my time there, I was blessed to meet all sorts of healers, teachers, practitioners of ceremonial magic, witchcraft, meditators, you name it, I met them. And I started to go to some spiritually oriented gatherings. And at one of these gatherings, I came across my shamanic teachers and I felt such a resonance with them. They cut through all the bullshit and really had a solid way of talking about connecting with spirit. And I felt in my core that that was my path. And it slowly evolved. I practiced Wicca and began to practice shamanic practices at the same time. And it slowly sort of drew me into the way of the shamanic practice. So I just followed it.
0: What would you say is the biggest difference in your experience between witchcraft and the shamanic practices?
1: In my experience, in shamanic practices, we're taught and led to create a very unique and individual relationship with what we call the spirits, our spirits of healing. There are specific modes of going into trance states where we can communicate with those healing and helping spirits. I did not find that in witchcraft. I found and find in shamanic practices, there's an expansion of consciousness that I did not experience in witchcraft.
0: So let's say like in witchcraft, there's spell work. What would be the closest comparable element in shamanic practices?
1: Yeah, it's more about ceremonial connection and offering gratitude for the answers of things and communicating with the spirits to receive information versus casting a spell to make something happen.
0: Mm, I'm really interested in this dynamic and this, this path that you've led, because there is something so compelling about both of these paths. I mean, I've spoken with shamanic practitioners and worked with shamans before, and I've also been around a butt ton of witches and there is that difference, right? That like witchcraft feels like sometimes this will, this willing, it's like almost like a pushing
1: I, I absolutely understand what you're saying. And a good way for me to sort of give an example of that is ceremonially in modern witchcraft sects, when they're calling in or invoking the elements, mm-hmm. there is a, almost a commanding mm. of that energy to come through. And in shamanic practice, it's more about honoring and offering gratitude. And welcoming versus invoking. Yeah. There's a distinct difference because in witchcraft, I mean, that's what you're talking about, that will, exerting your will. Yes. I think a little bit that what we're talking about, about exerting our wills, comes from the influence that ceremonial magic and Western mystery traditions have had on Wicca. I think Mm. it's a blending.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. There are some mentors within that field that I've felt closer to, and they're the ones who are like, let's not invoke. Like, let's let's maybe like change that word a little bit. It's almost like in ghost hunting shows, I think about this a lot. <laughs> These fucking dudes go into haunted houses and they're always like, show yourself. You know, it's like, really? That just are so not manners. Like that is no respect for the dead. You have no idea what's going on with this Entity, what couldn't you just be like? Hi, how are you? We're here in this space. We don't mean to freak you out. And there are some, especially newer and usually female ghost hunters who are more in that vein that idea of like, I'm not going to push you and command
1: you to do what I want. That's not sustainable. <laughs>
0: Yeah, right. You can't just be like pushing your way through everything. You know, there has to be some surrender. There has to be some honoring and some humility and, 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 and. Absolutely.
1: And I think that along any spiritual path, there needs to be compassion. And compassion is more of a present and receptive state of being. And if you're commanding and demanding and invoking, you're not in a receptive state of being, you're exerting your force. It's very projective mm. and not very receptive. And yeah. Compassion is receptive, in, in my opinion.
0: Yeah. That concept of like, yes, be open to the masculine, but always go home to the feminine. It's because that's where that receptivity is. And I, I feel like I do notice that difference working with shamans versus witches. There's just kind of like a more surrendered state when you work with elders in that tradition. And of course, this is another question for you, like how many traditions are there? And shamanism too, there has to be a bud ton.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And it's regional. Shamans in different regions have different practices that are part of their culture.
0: So what about your specific shamanic practices? What lineage is that from? And and where did your teacher sort of learn?
1: My teachers developed something that they call spirit-led shamanism. So it is not one specific lineage. It is a way that people can connect with their own spirits and have an independent relationship with them. My teacher's influences are from Mongolian teachings and from Icelandic or Norwegian teachings. Now this person that's your teacher, you met through the shop. No, I didn't. I met my I met Becky, Becky Shining Bearheart, Heart and Crow Swims Away are my shamanic teachers. And I met them through an event that I went to that I learned about through the shop, but it Go wasn't ahead. it wasn't at the shop. And they were teaching somewhere. It was either Virginia or somewhere in Pennsylvania. And that's where I met them. Yeah.
0: Did you feel when you met them? that there was an immediate connection? Like, do you feel that you've had past lives with them? Or what was that feeling like?
1: The feeling was, these people really know what they're talking about. They're 100% real. And they are actually living their lives and their entire beings in these teachings. And I just knew uh, my friend, Manjot, and I, we knew that we needed to work with Becky and Crow. And so they would come to us and teach. And we would go to them. And they lived in Ohio. And for about 13 years, this relationship between us as students and them as teachers happened. And then after about after 13 years, we did advanced training with them so that we could take our shamanic skills to the next level and really help people with shamanic healing techniques.
0: Let's break your life up into zero to or 18 months, as you said, to 33 and then 33 till now. And so then... In that first chunk, what would be one of the most profound spiritual experiences you had?
1: Well, the most powerful experience was when I found a relationship with the fire and the drums. That is the most profound experience in that time. I had a lot of cool experiences at the shop and met a lot of interesting people and did a lot of different rituals and learned a lot of different things. When I came to ceremony that had to do with drumming and fire and moving into trance states, Mm. that changed me forever. What's your sun sign? Libra. So not fire. I don't have much fire in my chart. I really work well with fire. Most of the people that I date or have dated have been fire signs or had fire rising because I work really well with fire most of the time. Um, <laughs> they can be spicy.
0: <laughs> I, don't,
1: <laughs> I don't have fire. I don't have a ton of fire in my chart.
0: Drumming and fire. You went to this. What was it? Tell me about it. What happened? What happened?
1: It was an earth, like a pagan gathering, an earth-based gathering, and there was a drum circle. And I was 20 years old, and I remember my friend was saying, we were at this event, and he said, well, there's this really cool drum circle that happens at night, let's go. And we walked to the other side of the camp, and we entered into the, the space of the drums, and as soon as we came through an opening and saw a couple hundred people dancing and drumming around the fire, I felt a sense of home. My mm. soul recognized what was happening there. And I have been following the path of the drums and the fire ever since. Have you seen Portrait of a Lady on Fire?
0: No. Oh, first of all, from one queer human to another, honey. You need to see it. I'm going to write it down. It's really good. And you're going to know exactly why I told you to watch it, not just because they're gorgeous humans, but also there is a fire scene in it. So it's really good. And when you said that, that's the first thing I thought of. And fire is so powerful. I love using it in ritual. It gets you in a space more quickly than some of the other elements. Did you feel like a switch went off in you or something and you were like now i must use fire all the time in my rituals or like how did your life change after that
1: something came alive inside me and freed me and i knew that i need to continue to go to these gatherings and circles and ceremonies with the drums and the fire
0: it's kind of perfect that you ended up in shamanic work though right cuz the drum is so prevalent i remember When I was mentoring with the shaman, there was always a drum. So yeah, it's kind of cool that it called to you. It's like maybe you were a shaman in a past life or something.
1: Well, it could be. Drums and fire, if we go back, 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 back for, you know, way back, drums and fire are at the heart of community. Ceremony is at the heart of community. I personally believe that community and ceremonial practices are what is going to take us to the next level on the planet. Mm.
0: Yes. Okay. I want to talk about
1: that. What do you mean by that? Yeah. Ceremony changes our consciousness and nothing short of changing our consciousness will get us to the next level on the planet. Yes. We need to pay attention to the climate change. Yes. We need to use less resources. Yes. We need to do all the things and changing our consciousness. So that we can make different choices and connect with our own truth and with the information that comes through different dimensions is what is going to shift us. I know that in my bones.
0: Yeah. This is going to sound terrifically shallow in response, but I watched a TikTok earlier (laughs) and this guy talks about NDEs specifically. And, oh, he's so interesting. He just sort of finds all these NDE experiences. And I love hearing the overlap, like these people are all having similar experiences. It's so fascinating. I could die. One of the things that comes up a lot is that people say, oh, these beings on the other side were like, Earth is going to have a lot of tsunamis and all this crazy shit. However, Earth doesn't have to have that happen. And the way to not have that happen, it's a number of different answers depending on the person, but it's generally like meditation or it's spiritual practices in general.
1: I think the real problem is, is that we have flown away from our hearts and we need to find our way back to our hearts. And when we are connected to our hearts, we're connected to like a universal truth. And part of a universal truth in humanity is, is that we connect through ceremony and practices that change our consciousness.
0: Yeah. I get reminders from every one of my guests, you know, and that's such a lovely way to look at it that we've really just forgotten kind of who we are and we've forgotten our hearts. We haven't let them really lead the show for a while, a long while. And that is what creates that feeling of compassion is being in community with people. And that that's what really was so particularly hard about the pandemic, right? Or that we're still in, but especially at the height of it when we were so isolated. How did that affect you as a practitioner to not be able to be in physical community with the people that you do ceremonial work with?
1: Well, we still did gather, just not as much. It was definitely challenging. And it it was the first time that I ever felt the deficit from not having physical human contact because I do not have children, right? So I'm not like touchy feely with kids. I did not have a live in partner. So there was a such a deficit of physicality. I'd never noticed that before. That never happened before. That I think was more of what I noticed or what affected me than not being able to gather. Or maybe it was a little bit of both.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I felt the same thing. We were in LA and LA was like locked the fuck down and deficit is a good word. Yeah. It just felt like, good God, like I need more than this. When I was able to come back into like circle, basically like being in groups of people again. It was actually really hard for me because I forgot almost how to communicate with people in groups. I couldn't handle all the energy. But then once I got through that initial phase, it was like taking a drink after being thirsty forever. How incredible it is to laugh and sing and hug people and chant and dance. And what you said before is so powerful because it's in those spaces that the heart is so accessible. I don't know when we got so off track as a species. I feel like we're just such dicks now to each other, but I feel we've always been like this a little bit, right?
1: Yes. Now it's extreme. (laughs) I think we're disconnected from our hearts. And when we're disconnected from our hearts, we make poor choices that don't include the hearts of other people.
0: Why do you think we're so disconnected from our hearts right now? What do you think are some of the factors causing that?
1: Well, we prioritize moving ahead, we prioritize productivity, we prioritize individualism, we prioritize nuclear families, we prioritize things that keep us separate. Capitalism, Mm. that development didn't do us any good. Certainly not. Yeah, all of those things.
0: It seems sort of like we're in a movie right now with the decline or whatever late stage version of capitalism we're in right now. So you know how we just divided your life up into pre-33, post-33. Where did your physical illness come from? Because in the pre-call, you mentioned this, and a lot of your journey has been about healing yourself.
1: So probably at about 27, I started to have some serious issues in my gut and my stomach, and the mainstream medical couldn't figure it out. And I spent years using all of my energy healing techniques and doing all the things things, thinking that it was simply stress-related, because that's what they attribute gut problems to, stress. I went on a journey of healing my stomach. I had to go in and out and all around, and I really needed to figure it out on my own, which I find is common. These days, there are a lot of people who have not just gut stuff, but other stuff that is a mystery to mainstream medicine, and we need to figure it out on our own. And I help people to do that, because I have learned how to do that. How did you learn how to do that? Hello? I need to know. (laughs) Yes. I learned how to engage in a practice of surrender and deep listening. And so in shamanic practice, we engage in a reciprocal relationship where we lean in and we lean out. We ask a question and then we stop and listen and pay attention. And so the very nature of that practice allowed me to tune into my body, to lean in, to offer gratitude, which is usually the last thing people want to do when they're in pain. But I learned how to offer gratitude and then listen. And so my body started to talk to me, and there was breakthroughs that happened as a result of that. And that's what I help other people to do, to transform the way that they interact with their own being, their own body, their own soul, so that something new can occur.
0: There's so many different offshoots of what you just said that I want to go into, but gratitude, you said like, that's the last thing that people want to do. And I have chronic pain myself. For me, a lot of the time it manifests not so much lately. I've gotten through a lot of it, but anger, I would just be so fucking pissed off. I'm like, why am I in this pain? Like, what is it? What is it? What is it? it?" How would you explain the power of gratitude in a moment like that, where you're in that physical pain that's throbbing, you know?
1: So, what I'm about to share is not your conventional experience of gratitude. Typically, with gratitude, we are taught to be grateful. It opens the heart. It puts us in the present. It helps to bring more of what we want. All of those things are true. Gratitude is also a bridge, it can be a bridge to more information. It can be a bridge between where you are now and where you want to be in the future. Offering gratitude for what is is one practice. Offering gratitude in advance for what it is you want creates a bridge between where you are now and where you want to be. And so what that looks like is putting your hands on yourself when you're in pain and when you're not in pain. It's helpful to have these practices in general because when you're in pain is a little more challenging. If you have these in place as a baseline, it's easier to go to when you have pain. And saying to yourself, hey body, I know you're going through a lot. Thank you for all the work you're doing for me. I appreciate you. I know this is hard. I'm listening. Thank you body for healing. Thank you for moving the energy optimally. Thank you. That changes your relationship between you and your body. That's the first thing I have to share about gratitude and and healing. In addition to that, when you offer gratitude in advance for the result that you would like to have, or what you want to experience, you are affirming that that's going to happen. So if I have a conflict that I'm having with a partner or a family member, I might get all worked up about it or feel frustrated. If I can take a moment to breathe, and you can do this, you can... Offer this gratitude to your soul, to your God or your goddess, to the life force, whoever you connect with. It doesn't really matter. Offering gratitude in advance for the resolution of the issue. Thank you, universe, Sky, goddess, creator. Enter in whoever it is. Thank you for clearing the way for this conversation to happen peacefully. Thank you for an easy resolution. Thank you for bringing the love into both of our hearts so we can get past this. Working with gratitude in that way changes the result and opens the door for what you want. So those are two different ways that we can work in an unconventional way with gratitude.
0: How long did it take to where you were like, oh my gosh, my gut is not freaking out, whatever was happening with your gastrointestinal issues?
1: Yeah, so I had suffered for probably about 10 years with an increasing amount of symptoms. And it was like a chronic unseen illness that I was working through and working with. And I just kept adapting my life to the gut issues. And then when I started to really drop in and speak with my gut and listen and almost get inside my body, something new occurred, something shifted. And I can't quite explain all of it because sometimes you can't explain healing and transformational healing. Something opened and my body started talking to me in a different way. And I was then led to a naturopathic practitioner who actually helped me in ways that I didn't even know I needed to be helped. So the answer to what my gut needed came through me listening and paying attention to what I was being shown and told. Do you feel like
0: your body was fighting you, warning you, trying to get you to learn a lesson? Why do you think the body does go into pain realms like that? Like Why do you think it gets stuck in chronic pain?
1: So there's the physical explanation, and then there's the spiritual explanation. And the spiritual explanation will probably be different depending on the lens through which we look. I feel that an experience that physically, when there's chronic pain, there's continued inflammation that's happening in the body. The body's working as hard as it can because our bodies are meant to heal. They came in that way. Sometimes they misfire. (laughs) They're meant to heal. And when there's chronic pain there is some source of chronic inflammation that we're not aware of. So I feel on a physical level, that is what happens. Additionally, there are some supports that the body needs, vitamins, nutrients, food that it doesn't get. And we don't know that it needs that. So we're running at a deficit. Our bodies are running at a deficit. That's I mean, like the short of how I would talk about physical stuff, physical reasons or influences for illness. Do you think
0: that you had the pain because you were actually in a deficit or did you have the pain? Because if you didn't have the pain, you maybe wouldn't have gone as far down the healing path as you have, you know, like the wounded healer archetype. That's what I'm getting at.
1: Yeah. Both can be true. I think that our human minds want to separate things and make it an or. Yeah, but really it's an and. A couple things can be happening at once. Yeah, there are, I mean, most healers have something that they have had to heal through or heal themselves from or are in the process of healing themselves from so that they can help other people. I think that we need to be able to hold space for our own process if we're going to be able to hold a process for other people. Because pain can lead us into some pretty intense places. And if I can't hold those intense places and spaces and emotions for myself, then I'm going to be terrified of them in other people. And how am I going to help people move through those intense things if I'm terrified? I'm not going to be terrified if I've already moved through them.
0: What would you say is like just a a quick thing that you could do that's like, Communicating with your body.
1: A quick thing would be to make a practice daily, if you could, for a minute, two minutes, longer if you would like, where you place your hands on your body and you offer it gratitude. I really appreciate you, even though it's hard. And thank you for letting me know what you need. I am listening. The body will give us more information when we're open to it. It sounds simple, but it really is quite profound. If you do that every day for two minutes, something new is going to occur.
0: Mm -hmm. You resent your body when you have chronic pain at times. So sort of training yourself to pivot to thanks so much for doing all that you do. It's like if somebody pisses you off, you know, in your workplace, for example, and then maybe the boss is like, hey, you got to start being a little nicer to them. Like your instinct will still be to be like, oh, God, Brad is such a douche. So you have to kind of like pull
1: it out. Hi, Brad hope you're doing well today, you know, takes practice. (laughs) It does take practice. And we're not trained on how to communicate with our body. If we were, we'd have a whole different relationship with our pain and our illnesses. No one tells us how to do this. Mainstream medical doesn't teach us how to do this. If we have some type of a spiritual practice or spiritual community that can teach us this, then maybe we learn it, but mostly not. Even some of the greatest spiritual teachers and spiritual practices don't tell you how to communicate with your body.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. This is your vessel that you have to work with. And you could get, we talk about this a lot on the podcast, you can get really stuck in those higher chakras and like you're not even in this body at all. I feel like what you were saying before about capitalism and how we're all disconnected from each other and ourselves and trying to make money in the grind and all it's like, that doesn't do anything for cultivating a relationship with self. It encourages you to just go to like, well, I don't have a lot of time. So what's the like quickest high level spiritual thing we can tap into. Whereas probably the best thing we could do is connect so simply with a practice like that like in your body, grounded in the lower chakras.
1: Yeah, I believe and experience that doing something for a short period of time, once a day, every day, is more effective than some big wham-bam spiritual experience that makes you feel good in the moment, but it acts like psychic candy, and it doesn't really give you the long-term effects or change your patterns. And in changing our patterns, we change ourselves. Psychic candy. That's so good. That's a whole nother episode.
0: That, yeah, for sure. I'd love to get into that with you. So, you were saying, I love this. And I want the listeners to like rewind and listen to what she just said again, which was that doing a short thing, even if it's just a couple minutes every day consistently, is almost more powerful than doing like, you know, one of those retreats or something that's going to elicit the psychic candy response. Yep. I have been there before. I've done these intense fucking meditation retreats and you feel the stuff or whatever. And then how the hell are you supposed to integrate that? I never once I've done it seven times. Do you know how hard it is to integrate? You do a hundred hours, hardcore meditation. Then you're just supposed to like come and integrate that into your life. No way. You're just shocked. It's a shock to your system and there's no easy way. So you end up falling off the wagon and you go to another retreat next year.
1: I have led different meditation or open to spirit challenges. And when we get together, we do, I've done seven day, 10 day, and 21 day. And we meet live for maybe half an hour a day at the same time and those are the kinds of practices where you can get some traction mm-hmm. you know you're get you're in the groove of it there's a group energy happening somebody's leading it you kind of have to show up, not have to but you you're compelled to show up cuz you're in that agreement that we're going to do this mm-hmm. and then that starts to get you in the groove of putting aside half an hour a day 10 minutes a day and then you can continue with that and that 10 minutes a day makes a difference.
0: That's such an excellent reminder because back to the meditation courses, those specific ones I'm talking about, they want you to meditate for two hours every day once you get out. Here is the thing, that sounds great, but if you live in this culture, it is very difficult to
1: maintain
0: that. 30 minutes that's maintainable. 10 minutes, that come on now.
1: That's what I say. People scroll social media for hours a day. 10 mm. minutes, you can do 10 minutes a day. You can do it. I believe in you listeners. Yes.
0: <laughs> I can yes. do it too. I mean, we it's I'm speaking to myself as well. Back to spirit-led shamanism. What does your practice look like as much as you're willing to share publicly?
1: My practice I have a, an altar set up in my home space, and I tend it. I communicate with my own healing spirits on a regular basis, and I address things from a ceremonial standpoint. Like on a regular basis, if somebody's ill, I do a ceremony and I do healing work for them. If somebody's dying, I do a ceremony and I do you know whatever transition work is needed. If there's a crisis on the planet, I do a ceremony and you know do whatever. So so that's my approach: opening up ceremonial space and doing what I know to do to help heal people in the planet and to also help me receive the information that I need so that I can be the most helpful. I think that's the shortest and easiest way to explain it. I hold ceremonial space so people can change consciousness and connect with their own spirits of healing. I travel to spirit on their behalf and I ask, what do we need to know? And I'm given the bird's eye view and I help to rearrange and reconnect them to their own power. There's a variety of techniques that I'm trained in that are semi-standard in shamanic practices. I do them in a contemporary way because I'm living in a contemporary culture. And that's what I do. To help people.
0: When you say I create a ceremonial space, what does that look like?
1: Yeah, well, first, I usually sit on the ground. I'll sit on a backjack or a floor cushion, so I'm close to the earth, and I sit at my altar. And if I'm traveling, I have a traveling altar that I take with me, like a, something that is can be put up and taken down. So I'm close to the earth. I have my sacred items out that connect me to spirit and to healing. I open up the space and my heart. I welcome in the healing and helping forces. I work with seven directions of energy, so I welcome them in. I will often work with my drum, and I will go from there. There are actual steps that are involved in every ceremony whether you're catholic, jewish, pagan, shaman, they look it looks a little different but the steps are the same. I engage in those sort of steps. There's an opening, there's a gratitude, there's an intention, there's a doing of the thing that I came to do in that ceremony. There's an offering that happens afterwards and then there's a closing. That that is so brief and that is the gist of it. That is the gist of what I do and anybody can do this if they know how.
0: Is there always a component that's speaking with guides or working with non-human entities or spirits, whatever you specifically call them?
1: Not always. If I am actively needing to get information, I will go into a space where I communicate with them. And sometimes I'm just honoring. I don't need any information. I just want to honor and, and hold a space for that honoring. That's so good
0: too, because I think we only pray when we want something. So that's something I try to do when I'm chatting with my guides. I try to open it with hope things are good in your realm. You know, I try to keep it funny in the way that like I am so that it feels like a conversation with a friend as opposed to me being like, can you do this for me? Because I'm suffering again. This is something I
1: talk about all the time. In a lot of mainstream religions, people are taught to pray in a way that feels to me like begging. And that's not how we do it in shamanic practice. We are opening a door and having a dialogue all the time. So when we need something, it's not a big deal. And we don't beg. We offer gratitude, ask for insight, and say, thank you for helping me with this healing. The door is always open. So we don't have to do any sort of special thing to get there. That's why spending a couple minutes a day in communication with your body or in communication with spirit is really important because then the door is open. And then all you need to do is walk through it when you need to. You don't have to keep trying to figure out, how do I open the damn door? Right.
0: Right. Since we just talked about spirit guides, somebody who has never even thought about it before, but they're like, I want to know who my spirit guides are. What would you tell them to do?
1: I would tell them first to not get hung up on figuring out who they are and what their names are, to create an opening. And the way that we create an opening is by showing up and saying, Hey, thanks for guiding me. That is, it's really that simple. Begin by saying, Thanks for guiding me. Do it once a day. Do it before you go to bed or do it when you get up in the morning. Say, thank you. I'm listening. (laughs) And then create some space where you can actually perceive and experience some of what is being shared with you. And be prepared to not have everything piped into your ear like people think, psychics do or something. Be prepared to pay attention to how you might perceive energy because some people, many people perceive energy in ways that you would, would not think of. Right. Some people do hear information. Some people see it visually or psychically. Some people get it in their f- body viscerally. Some people get information through smell. Some people get information through sound, not just hearing words, but through sound. We really limit ourselves with how we receive information. People are receiving information all the time. Some people receive information when they are asleep and, and here's where we go going for a while. There are natural times of day where we are in an in-between state or in a liminal state. And if we can learn about those times, we can stretch them out and pay more attention to them and really get information at those times because we have a natural opening at those times.
0: Before we hop off here, I always ask my guests this last question, which is what is the weirdest woo paranormal thing that's ever happened to you?
1: When somebody that I knew who was 13, she became sick with cancer. And at about 15, she was at a place where she was dying. And I went to visit her and I was expecting to see this decrepit, pain-ridden child. And I went into the hospital room. She was in the bathroom. She came out of the bathroom. And what I saw was not of this earth. There was a glowing, emanating energy all around her and coming through her that I had never before in my life seen. And as I looked at her and she looked at me, I realized at that moment that this is what it looks like when the heavens open up and start to claim a human being. It was a merge between dimensions. And I was privileged enough to actually see it in front of me. Dang. Changed a lot of things for me. I was like, wow. Yeah.
0: Back to the NDEs that I was looking at. That's one of those things that's so recurring is this light that when you pass from this dimension to that dimension, however it works, there's always this, this light that pulls you in.
1: Yeah. And she crossed over within two weeks. So it was that timing where that portal was opening for her mm. to move
0: through. Yes. You're right. What a privilege to experience that, to be present during that liminal space and that exact moment to see that. That's really special.
1: It was very special. Yeah. Well,
0: I want to tell the listeners about your work. It doesn't all have to be in person. Is that correct?
1: Oh, yes. I've been working over Zoom for a long time, t- at least 10 years. Yeah. 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 Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to say anything about the freebie that you're offering? Yeah. Brigid forward slash awaken. It's a three video training series that helps you to start to work with your energy so that you can be in command of your energy and start to tap into your intuition and connect with your own natural healing abilities.
0: Yeah, I I will be doing that freebie. So especially now after this conversation.
1: This has been a real joy. Thank you for having me on this show. Absolutely.
0: it's Likewise, the pleasure is mine, seriously. And watch Portrait of a Lady
1: on Fire. I wrote it down. down. (laughs) All right. Have a good one, Bridget. Thanks, Finn. Bye for now. Bye.
0: So I was thinking about where I heard someone else talking about people going into the light, like Bridget's amazing experience. And I can't remember if it was like Portals to Hell, which is Jack Osborne and Katrina Weidman's ghost hunting show on Discovery Plus, or if it was Kesha's new ghost hunting show. That's right. If you haven't heard of it, Kesha has a ghost hunting show. You should watch it because it is very entertaining. But I feel like it was one of those shows where they were doing this, maybe a ghost box session. And at some point, all these spirits went right into the light. I don't know why I'm telling you this. I guess because I have been thinking about how spirits go into the light a lot lately. It always makes me think I got to go back to the drawing board and that i'm not going to figure anything out you know <laughs> because why is it light you know why why do we go into the light for real why is it always no matter what the culture no matter what we're talking about humans dying or entities crossing over there's always a light element i guess what i keep coming back to is that it just goes back to that polarity planet situation that there has to be contrast for this planet to do its dang thing so there has to be the dark and there has to be the light I don't know, though. I guess the question I'm needling at is why is good always so connected to light? And I feel like I've already answered this question on a previous episode (laughs) or somebody else did, like one of my guests. But I'm just thinking about it, right? Because you have to work with the shadow parts of yourself. I would say that there's nothing that's intrinsically bad. I mean, I know some people are like, no, there's a strong wrong and there's a strong right. But It also reminds me of one of my favorite Rumi quotes, which is, Out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. Come on. This is an ongoing philosophical debate. Is there a right and wrong, or do we make that so? Good and bad and right and wrong and dark and light. Good night. (laughs) Anyway, chew on that for a while. You can check out what Bridget Murphy's up to at bridgetmurphy.com and definitely check out that freebie, that three part series at bridgetmurphy.com forward slash awaken. I haven't done it yet, but I will. And for the record, I have started talking to my body and listening to my body based on the advice that Bridget gave in this interview. And I have noticed a difference. But I'm excited to see what will happen over a period of time of doing this for a couple minutes every day. So I'll keep you updated on that. All right. I hope your week is way better than last week if you had a shitty full moon situation. Bye. Thank you for following the woo with me today. If you love what you heard, please make sure to subscribe to Follow the Woo wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're feeling particularly stoked about this show, please leave a review and or rating. You can also support this podcast by becoming a member of The Order of Woo, where you'll get community access and loads of extra goodies exclusively on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash follow the woo. The Order of Woo patrons bolster this podcast and community and allow for the creation of more content, products, services, and events over time. Every little bit helps, and I'm so grateful for the patrons who have joined the order already. If you've experienced something magical, mystical, or just downright weird and want to discuss it, or if you're interested in sharing your expertise, or if you want me to research a woo topic with you or for you, please email me at followthewoo at gmail.com. Join me next week for another woo topic. And remember, tell the truth, be nice to each other, and if it feels right, follow